2020 has barely begun and most wanted driver testing is already in the book. So we're gonna try to get the scoop from Harry Nodwell in the facility. And we're also digging into direct to consumer brands in golf, why it's good, why it's bad, and how to navigate it. Guys, this is episode number 32 of No Putts Given. Let's get it. No Putts Given is powered by My Golf Spy, the most extensive reviews in golf. Before you buy, My Golf Spy. Nine million readers do it every year. Check us out. Okay, let's get to know everybody once again. On my left is Harry Nodwell, and joining us remotely is Tony Covey and Chris Nickel. We're operating today without our fearless leader. Adam is off, but I think we can handle it without him. What do you guys think? It's worth trying. I don't know. If not, if if not, we won't we won't have a program next week. <laughs> okay, well, like we said at the top of the episode, most wanted driver testing for 2020 is complete. Harry, how do you feel? Relieved? Do you feel like there's a loss in your life? How how, how are we doing? Relieved is the uh, <laughs> is the I feel I feel more relieved than anything else because it was just a long, long process. Um, I mean, last year there was 210 hours of uh, testing for that driver test with 24 drivers this year there's 315 hours and 444 individual shots with 37 drivers and that's that's 440 times 37 right that's right i was gonna yes. say it's exactly not 400 so 400 shots, so. so that adds up to 15,540 shots for the whole test that is before we do any extra shots that if say someone topped it or skied one we need to get 10 to 12 good shots in i think what a lot of consumers don't know is you do look at every individual shot to make sure it yes, qualifies unfortunately for... <laughs> yes so explain like if someone does top it or what what's a shot that you wouldn't take into consideration so that you'd have to toss uh, well you look at every single aspect of of a shot and what makes a golf shot good or bad so you're looking at ball speed. If there's a drop in ball speed from the standard deviation of the um, the average, basically, of the ball speed. So say if it's 150 is the average and you have one down there at 130, that normally correlates across the board. So you normally have either popped it up and your spin rate's 5,000 and it's gone 150 yards and a peak height of 50. So that one you're going to throw out. But when it comes to keeping them, you want to try and keep them within a certain level. So you you don't want it to go below a certain spin rate. You don't want to go above a certain spin rate. Uh, peak height, ball speed, launch angle, the whole nine yards goes in to make a good shot a good shot. Does it take a lot of effort to get one tester to get the amount of correct shots that you need in order for that particular driver uh, test to be we, done? I mean, it varies on tester. Um, slower swing speed testers sometimes struggle a little bit more um, to get that spin, that spin rate up because they don't generate enough speed to actually get that ball in the air and fit to hang up as much as possible. But before I do all of this, I'm fitting them into a proper shaft that's going to be peak for them, the correct loft, put the CG back and down if, if they can't generate enough spin. So we are tweaking every single driver to the perfect um, characteristics of that individual tester. Now, Tony, this is just the beginning phase of getting to the final end goal of the most wanted article. So now Harry's finished up the testing. He's sending it to you where you're going to start the analytics phase, right? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So when Harry says that, you know, we, we kind of drop shots and keep count, this is this is one of several tweaks we're making this year where, you know, we're sort of dropping it in a virtual sense meaning harry's kind of marking it as hey I, I think this is a bad shot so we need to make sure we replace it with a good shot but we're we're keeping track of all of that data to begin with so we've got this this mountain of shots to begin with and we've got to run it through our processing and, and one of the big things that we do is is filter outliers uh statistically using median absolute deviation which i know is kind of a boring as hell kind of thing to talk about but it's it's how we kind of determine what what is typical for for a given golfer and that's really what we're trying to eliminate is shots that are atypical for a golfer with a given club now uh, we are going to tweak the way we do that a little bit still using median absolute deviation but we're, we're looking at some different things this year 
Uh, and I'm going to hold off on talking about that till we get a little closer. Hopefully we're just a couple weeks out on the results. But that we think is, is a really kind of intriguing change to how we do things that, that could ultimately lead to, I think, better results or more relevant results for golfers. And the, and the other piece I would, I would add that is what is different this time around is, is for the first time in a long time, we've brought in somebody from outside my golf spy. Um, uh, I'll just say it's somebody who, who works in the data analytics space is probably, you know, it's a, it's a safe thing to say right now. And we've given him full access to our data, given him the ability to really go through it and look at it differently. And it's been really interesting as, as he and I have gone back and forth. He's, he's finding some things that we had maybe, I don't want to say we've overlooked, but we, we, I'd say we kind of stopped looking at at a point in the past. And then as we've moved on and altered things, he's kind of said, well, maybe, you know, it does make sense to go back and look at this a little bit differently again. So, so far anyway, it's been just like really, really interesting to get an outsider's perspective on, on what our data looks like and what it tells us. And, you know, more than just getting down to, hey, this is the best because we, we ran our standard kind of analytic methodology through it, but also really kind of getting the data to a point where it, it tells the most complete story it possibly can. So I'm certainly really interesting to, interested to see what comes out of it. And I think, you know, what's, what, what may be most interesting to our, to our readers and listeners at this point is that the, the test is over, it's finished, Harry did all his work. And, and at this point, you know, we're really just beginning that analytic process. So we, we couldn't even tell you kind of who won. Now, Harry, Harry may have some insight into what testers liked and what they didn't like, but in terms of arriving at rankings and, and what we think is going to work best for the most golfers, no idea. Absolutely no idea at this point. I was going to ask if you had seen any trends, maybe Harry in the facility or Tony in your just beginning looks at some of the data. Is anything standing out to you at all? For me, yeah. Uh, again, last year was a very low spinning driver year, and the trend is exactly the same way, if not more low spinning than last year. They're, they're launching them higher, so with the low spin, so that it's actually equaling itself out a little bit, if you if you, if you will. Um, so those optimal windows that we have seen in the past from TrackMan and Foresight are no longer in what I've seen the optimal window. They have now shifted into a different dimension. Tony, is the data you're seeing reflecting the trends that Harry was picking up in studio? To be honest, I haven't even looked at it, which is kind of amazing at this point. But, you know, we're one of the things that goes goes with working with, with somebody from the outside is we're fundamentally changing the tools we use to process the data. And so, you know, to to do it the way we've done it takes a little bit of work. And if we're not going to use that methodology, and it certainly looks like we're not going to, I, I don't want to get in there and, and sort of kind of dig through it if we don't need to. We're going to kind of rely on, on our partners on the outside a little bit to see what they come up with. But in terms of looking at the raw data, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but no, I, I have no idea. None. So That's okay. So why have we actually gone to an outside source? That was my next question. Why change the methodology? Well, I, would, I mean, I would say one of the things that, that kind of almost blows my mind about my golf spy, right? Is that there are people who who come to us and say, "Hey, I this is my skill set, and I want to help you." And and sometimes you know you're always appreciative, but sometimes that skill set doesn't align to anything you're that you're you're trying to do or trying to accomplish. It just doesn't fit with what we do. But every now and then somebody comes to you with you know the very specific set of skills, and <laughs> it just it aligns beautifully, and so. When, when this person came to us and said, hey, you know, I would love to take a look at your data and work with you and help you guys get even more out of it and just do some, some really cool stuff. I'm like, Uh-oh. yeah, you know, let's, let's do it. And obviously there's something like that. There's the, the requisite amount of legal paperwork involved. But, you know, we, we made it happen. And it's, um, you know, again, I don't know what the end product looks like. But um, just in the conversations we've had, I'm, I'm really excited about where this is going to go. And just the fact that it's, it's fresh eyeballs on some things that, that we maybe stopped looking at that we now have the opportunity to dig back into because of, of how we've evolved with our methodology. So just some, just some really cool things happening. Yeah, so far, so really, really good. But, you know, to be seen, but, but hopefully we see something soon. Well, what's not changing, I mean, we spent time talking about what is changing, right? Those are all good, valuable changes, but something that isn't changing is the volume of the shots. And so I think people get wrapped up to, and, you know, 
these YouTube reviews and things and you get maybe five, six, seven shots and people go, oh, that's the driver I want to buy or this driver's doing really well this year or that driver's doing re- you know really well this year. I got a text message from another you know, source inside the industry and they said, oh yeah, these, uh, you know, our, our, our driver's being portrayed really positively in these reviews and said, yeah, that's great. But, you know, think about it this way too, like the difference between six, seven shots, if, if every shot were a dollar, you have the difference basically between a decent ham sandwich and a, and a used Honda Accord, you know, <laughs> like we have 15, 16, 17,000 shots that we're, we're tabulating as opposed to five, six or seven. And that's a, you know, I don't know what we need to do sometimes to get consumers to understand that and really grasp that. But in terms of statistical significance, it's, um, you know, they're nowhere even close to one another. Well, before the actual shots are taken out and the, we, it goes through our outlier detector system, we've already hit like 15,500. Now, that's before I've even said, All right, you need to hit some more on this club to get the 10 to 12 good shots. So there's a huge amount of shots still to go into that um, that database. So correct me if I'm not understanding the process. So you go, you do the initial test, you run some data, and if you discover that you're missing something, you go so, back. Yeah, so how we do is, is we do, they have four clubs and they hit each club three times and then go four times through. So in total, they're gonna have 12 shots. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to those pop-up shops, those tops, those snap hooks, those kind of stuff, um once we've got all of our parameters that we need to abide by then once all that is equated then i can see all right well you need one two three four five for this club three for that one no for this zero on this one and then get them to go and do them again in in the order um so for instance they could have 47 shots or 48 shots and be done with the test Mm -hmm. Or they can go up to 55 to 60, depending on when diminishing returns comes in. Because um, they do get tired after swinging so many shots. So we try not to get that diminishing returns in to affect the data because then, therefore, the data is no good for us and no good for our, our test. That's one, of the, uh, that's one of the changes we made a couple of years ago where we, we really started to look at, you know, I believe the, the key thing that I looked at, if my recollection is correct, was just looking at at club head speed over the course of a testing session. And, you know, as we look, cause we, we used to try and push it five, five or more drivers in a single session. And, yeah. It was a lot. And when we, we really started to look at it, we started to see more and more dots falling beneath the trend line, if you will. So again, as Harry mentioned, kind of diminishing returns and we don't want that, right? We want, we want your last shot to be with the same kind of energy and force and, and lack of fatigue, right. As, as the first. And so, you know, I remember once upon a time we were doing six sessions to get through the test with each golfer, and now what well, we're nine or ten on average, Harry. So. This was this was this was nine nine, and last year I think there was six six sessions, which was a big yeah. test. More drivers, and then obviously the the more tighter attention to detail on the fatigue factor. So it's yeah, it's it's an exhaustive, massive effort that it, it literally takes months to complete. Yeah. Long, Tony, long you've been here since the onset. What's the biggest changes or the differences in the adaptations of the test from when it started to where we are now? Yeah, I guess kind of if I were looking at, at points and, you know, kind of lines in the sand, if you will, like when we did, when we, the first year or two we did this, you know, we were, we thought we were hot shit because we had six testers and nobody else had more than one, right? And that was, and that was, we had, you know, two low handicap, two mid and two high handicap golfers. That was the theory. And as we grew, we started to get pushback from from manufacturers going, you guys need to you need to get to at least 10. And so that was the next step. We jumped up to 10, and that was also the first year we used Foresight, which was a huge improvement for us. And then we went from 10 to 20, and 20 was – everybody was happy with 20. And then we kind of looked at it, and we're like, you know, we feel like we want to fill in data kind of definitely on the lower swing speed range. We want to get more guys in there and a couple more on the high end too. And so – as we pushed and pushed and wanted to get to a statistically reliable sample size and everything that goes into it, we, we pushed and, and we got all the way up to 35 now. And so that's, you know, 35, 35 testers with almost 40 golf clubs coming in, you know, nine, roughly nine times each to get the number of shots we need over the course of two months. I mean, it's, it's every step of the way we've gotten better. And 
along those lines, we added the outlier detection system we use. We, we got some help with that. And that was, you know, that was really a breakthrough for us. Moving to a strokes gain methodology to try and quantify what constitutes better, kind of a, a total, a look at total performance versus going, hey, this is the best driver because it's the longest or it's the best driver because it's the straightest. Like strokes gain gives you elements of both those things, plus what I consider to be elements of forgiveness as well. So that was a that was a huge step for us as well. And now I'm 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 really optimistic that what we're doing with the with the analytics piece is, is kind of our next big thing that ultimately is going to make the test that much better, even if you know it's not amazingly obvious to the to the to reader how much we've tweaked things and what's changed. But yeah, it's yeah, this is this is a big one for us. We've also used head data in the last three years, correct? We went to head data to help work out those um, statistical significance. Well, yeah, I mean, so that's going to be one of the big changes this year is that we we look more at at head data to to kind of determine what is consistent versus inconsistent with the rest of the shot pool. But I mean, that was that was one of the things we discovered early on when we we got set up with Foresight and at the time the HMT. We're like, oh yeah, this is this is cool. It gives us head data. That this is neat, right? This will be fun. And and what we realized that, you know, probably less than a year into it was like, holy shit, getting reliable head data and, and being able to correlate what we see in terms of how the ball flies with, with what led to it flying that way and what the golfer did with the club. I mean, that was super super important and it's just again it was one of those things where we looked at it initially and we're like yeah whatever and now we're like yeah no we, we couldn't do what we do without reliable head data that we get i was gonna say the, because the hmt and now the gc quad with the with the head data we can we can see where the ball is uh struck on that head so we can see the standard deviation of if it is a miss a miss hit right so much we can do like the same thing we do and again, it, it becomes overwhelming to present all this data in our, our report. If, but, you know, we calculate a, a shot area, for example, right? Our dispersion pattern for the shots. We can and have in some, certain cases done the same thing with the face. Like, all right, what's what's the face mapping look like? Where are these guys hitting this across the face? It's basically the same math. So seeing that, to be able to see, all right, how a club performs for a guy with a with a negative angle attack versus a positive angle attack, and and how much dynamic loft is being generated by each club. And again, this isn't this isn't stuff stuff we always share every time because it, it gets to be overwhelming. Because again, we're talking about thirty five testers and forty ish clubs, but the insights are are absolutely amazing, and it, and it helps us with everything else we do the rest of the year, like when we're in talking with golf companies about products and understanding how these things are going to perform relative to one another. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to, to understate the value or to overstate rather. Okay. So we've got something to look forward to with the most wanted. Yeah. Do we, we don't have year. a time timeline as of yet, do we? Cause I know they're all going to be wanted um, to know. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping, uh, I'm hoping within a couple of weeks here. Yeah. It sounds like you have a, a significant amount of work to do, so we're not going to rush you. Oh, the consumer will. The consumer <laughs> I was going to say everyone else will, but we're trying to tell him. Every everybody wants the results, and and you know I understand that. I I want the results, right? I want to know, but it it's it's important to pay attention to the details and and make sure everything is is what it needs to be. All right, moving on. So I'm going to render a guess here. Were any of the drivers that you tested this year direct to consumer? I think one. And I think that's sub-70. Is that correct, Tony, for one direct-to-consumer? Sub-70, and, and we also had uh, the Ben Hogan in the mix, right? Yeah, Ben Hogan. Okay, Sorry, so I forgot about them. Back in the business. If Tommy Armour counts, you may toss that one in there, right? Eight, four. I mean, it's... Uh, that's, that's, in, that's in Dick stores. We'll get yeah. to it in terms of direct-to-consumer, what actually qualifies as that, I guess, but... Yeah. It's kind of like on the edge. On the edge. Chris, that's what I was going to ask next. Can you give us a breakdown of what direct to consumer would mean, Chris, exactly for those who might not understand it completely? Yeah. So it, I mean, it, it's one of those definitions that really at face value, it sounds like what you think it is, meaning mm. that you're getting a product directly from uh, kind of the production entity. So usually you think about distribution as having different layers. You have the, you know, the, the actual construction facility or the manufacturer of it. You have the OEM, the original equipment manufacturer. Then you typically have some type of distribution network. So think about, you know, like a PJ Superstore or Dick Sporting Goods or, Pro you know, something like that. 
pro shop, yeah, green grass accounts. And then finally, you have the consumer. And so typically, when we're talking about DTC or direct to consumer brands, we're talking about companies that have removed one or more of those particular layers. And so you know, yeah, like with a Tommy Armor, it's the in-house brand of Dicks. So have they really removed a layer of the distribution or just consolidated two of them? You know, you can probably argue that. Whereas you might say a company like Snell with golf balls, you know, you're purchasing from the site. There isn't necessarily a lot of green grass uh, retailers, so they're not having to pay for sales force. They're not having to pay for uh, sales reps to be out there uh, servicing the accounts, etc. It's coming directly to the consumer from, uh, you know, from the manufacturer. So, yeah, I mean, it gets a little bit sticky, but that's, you know, kind of in a nutshell, the overview of it. Now, it's definitely more common in golf balls than golf clubs, right? We see it a lot more in the golf ball industry versus club industry, right? Yeah, I mean, the I think of your, your cost to produce, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if anybody wanted to become a golf ball brand, get in the golf ball business, they could they could probably have a you know, product in the production line by the end of the week. Like you, the turnaround is that quickly. And, you know, that's maybe overstating it, especially with some of the issues going on in, in Asia right now. But that's basically what it takes, right? You can get in the, in the ball business with a phone call. Uh, and it's to an extent the club the club business is becoming a little bit like that though the kind of the way things work tend to be a little bit different on the club side but intriguing nevertheless because you you have some of the same overlaps right the 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 driving force behind the interest in direct to consumer golf balls is the value right they are they are less expensive than than your Titleist your Bridgestones your Callaways the the names you know so Along the same lines, if you can make a golf club or sell a golf club of reasonable quality and reasonable performance for significantly less than it would cost you to buy a Titleist or a Callaway or a TaylorMade, then then there's you're you're likely going to generate some interest, and that's exactly what we're seeing in the club space now. So so this is basically where the the DTC is basically cutting out the middleman is essentially. In a way, uh, because if you think about it, if you think about sub 70, Tony doesn't like that definition, (laughs) (laughs) but you come, it comes straight from the website and we've, we've tested them and some of their products have performed very well and, and won best value. Yeah. I mean, in point of of fact, if it were really direct to consumer cutting out the middleman, I think in a strict definition, like foremost, for example, right, makes, makes golf balls and, and they make golf balls for a lot of the brands that we know and we've cut open and there's a very common three-piece construction yeah. that they use that, you know, again, we we could start our own golf ball company and, and order X number of those by the end of the week. So if you could order directly from Foremost, that feels like you've cut out every middleman possible, whereas, you know, Foremost makes it for whomever else for vice and then vice sends it to you. So there is that layer of markup. So it's not like direct, direct to you, but it is directly to someone and, and then to you. But then sub 70 is that way. Correct. Well, it's, it's similar. And this is, you know, if we want to, it's probably helpful to, to talk about specific brands. And, and this is one of the things that I appreciate about sub 70 is that, you know, Jason Highland, the owner is honest. He is open and honest about how he does things. So we, we published an article on sub 70 on Monday and, and Jason brutally honest, like, look, I'm, I'm not designing this stuff myself. I'm not sitting down and designing every piece of equipment I sell. I work very closely with the factories and then we kind of work on the cosmetics together. We, we build to a, a, an affordable price point and a lot of that comes from the fact that Sub70 has next to zero marketing, right? They, they do bit on minimal amount of marketing. I, I think probably the, the expense involved with tour players is overstated in general, but Jason's number there is effectively zero. And so you're, you're really kind of working with a, a factory to design a product, put your logo on that product, and then ship it out to the consumer who wants it. And the big thing is that, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm making this factory product what I want it to be. I'm ensuring the quality is what it needs to be for my consumer, and I'm standing behind it. And then when you look at kind of what we see in our testing, I think most of our, our listeners understand that, you know, as, we, as companies have butted up against USGA and RNA limitations, there's just... 
such such very little room in which to operate and that narrow space also means that there's there's more opportunities for smaller brands to step up and and come closer to matching the big guys in in terms of yeah. performance and things like that especially especially in the iron space and as you move more into players irons where technology has always been somewhat minimal to begin with i mean that's that's what we're seeing for sure do you think it's at all – I mean, I was thinking about this a little bit in terms of who's doing the actual design work. I mean, who's the actual you know cook in the kitchen, so to speak, that if you're working with a reputable design firm for some of these companies, wouldn't that be better than them doing the designs themselves? You would think so. I mean, I think uh, I think a good example of that, and again, Tommy Armour kind of exists on the periphery of this. Yeah, so that's my that's the one that comes to my mind. But they they work with Performax, which is you know one of the the biggest, most reputable club manufacturing facilities in Asia. I mean, these guys have right probably literal decades of expertise, not only manufacturing but also designing golf clubs. So I mean, there there's something to be leveraged there as well. And you also have companies like like New Level with with Eric Birch. He's the owner there, who's been in, you know, he's been in the industry in one capacity for another for for close to decades. Yeah, beginning and, with Club Connects and all that, right? Right. So he he has an engineering background. He has an engineering background in golf at this point, and so you know his what he's saying is, hey, I I design all of this stuff myself. But again, he's he's limited to the iron and wedge space, and his stuff tends to trend not not exclusively but certainly trends towards forgings for the better players and so again yeah. that's that's a space where you're not talking a lot of high high technology and so if you, you have the experience understand how golf clubs work you can be successful in that space and you know eric is from what we've seen he makes solid stuff and it's it's under a thousand dollars and when you consider that the typical players irons again mizuno titleist name your brand that that stuff's creeping up over 1300 now so Quickly. there's there's real value in this space if you trust the brand. if I was going to say, that's just it, is if you trust the brand. So if you flip the conversation on its head a little bit, where do major OEMs have a huge advantage then in terms of the R&D in the design? If it's not players irons, I mean, and they're small things, right? Like, you know, covered Mizuno last year and you see how they create the molds and then they actually go to Turbo to do kind of the final touches and everything and they make the molds based on Turbo's final, you know, final alterations, those are subtle differences that that maybe make a difference. Maybe they're just distinctions without a huge difference. But where do major OEMs actually take a, a you know, a, a large step forward over the DTC brands, do you think? Oh, uh, you know, that's, that's a good question. And people aren't going to like this answer because they... That's kind of why I asked it. Yeah, they, they love it. Everybody wants to root for the little guy and, and say, yeah, they can match what the OEMs do. And, and I would say in some cases they can come close. But when you when you look at a metalwood product, for example, right, um, especially in that space, the more disconnected you are from the product, the, I think the more difficult it is to maintain quality and consistency. So if you look at a brand like Callaway, for example, there are Callaway employees that, that – sit in the factory that produce their drivers they're there to make sure that that every one of them or as, as many as they can be are, are exactly to the spec they should be to kind of oversee the operation and what you get for that are tighter tolerances in things like your 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 cg placement right and your your ct tolerances and that's a big one we talk about ct all the time so if 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 you're a big brand you can you have more control to keep your ct tolerances like this Whereas a smaller brand trying to produce a driver is probably going to be here and here and here. And that's, right. that's not just strictly direct-to-consumer brand. It's, it's any brand that, that doesn't have the money to make that sort of direct investment in, in the process. So, so they may that, have a team of engineers and product engineers working on that you know, uh, different fairway wood. There might be a team just for fairway woods. Whereas if I'm working with a smaller situation, it might be one or two people. I mean, it's a lot of it is people power. That's part of it. And then if we talk about advantages on the iron side, right, we see see breakthrough technologies, right? We hear about things like urethane microspheres is kind of what just pops <laughs> into my head, right? This and, and all the stuff you're doing with new materials and inserts, that kind of thing takes a while to to trickle from the big OEMs to to the factories and smaller brands. So anything that's kind of a high tech design. For example, you don't see, you don't see many, or if any, right, direct-to-consumer products that have the equivalent of speed foam or 
what I can't even remember what the Elastomer goo, whatever else is on aisle six. Yeah. Right. Whatever the PXG is using, right? Caffeine there. injected. <laughs> Caffeine injected. Right. The the re- dual reactor technology, things like that. Anything that requires a lot of technology and a lot of research and a lot of development uh, expense, that's that's what kind of the big OEMs are paying for. And and you know, they're they're spending a lot to get a little bit. And the trade-off for the consumer is you you have to spend a lot more to get that little bit. Yeah, to get that last maybe 2%, 1%, 5% of performance, it's disproportionately expensive. Always, but that's not unique to golf, right? I mean, that's any industry. That's the world. Guys, I'm thinking about this from the consumer's perspective. And maybe you can educate me on the thought process in going into buying a club or a ball direct to consumer. But I'd imagine there'd have to be a significant amount of faith in reputation of these brands because there isn't a place that you can go and test it out, feel it, touch it, get an idea of how you would like to play it. I mean, for example, I bought a household item online the other day and I read 37 reviews and it's just a a pillow sham. You know, if a (laughs) golf club, something you're investing a significant amount of money in, I'd imagine you'd want a little bit more hands-on experience before you invest in something like that. Well, there there are two schools of thought, right? There's the idea that a golf club for some people is effectively a pillow sham in so much as, Hey, I read 26 reviews and 90% of them were positive. And this, I like the looks of this club. I've read good things about it. It's affordable. I'm going to buy it. Or maybe I like the looks of this club. It's affordable. So I'm going to have the company send me a demo seven iron, which is, yeah, that's a lottery ticket right there. Well, and that, but it's, it's an affordable lottery ticket. And we know that in the grand scheme of things, the performance differences between clubs aren't, aren't going to be massive. And so when you consider the price difference for a segment of golfers, it's worth taking a risk that, you know, maybe, maybe trying this demo seven iron is enough, or I'm not even going to demo it at all. Like I, I like the way this, this head looks. I like the shape from what I can see. The reviews are good. I know which shaft I want. And that's the other thing. You can still, with a lot of the direct-to-consumer brands, pick the shaft you want, pick your grip. So there is that kind of custom element to it. And then it's just a case of, hey, I, I just saved 600 bucks on a set of irons, and I'm good with that. Well, how much How much do you think that is subjectively? So when you're thinking about it, oh, it looks good, it, it feels okay, but it performs like crap. But when it comes to your, your unconsciously thinking that it's going to perform well, sometimes it does perform well correct because that's 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 a trade-off because you you see all this money that is is injected into marketing and you're brainwashed and said oh i'm gonna get 10 more yards or blah 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 this is the best iron yet we've ever made so you're already thinking i need to get that set of irons or that driver because it's gonna help me now when you get it in your hands it's it's sometimes it's not that that way inclined well, and, and that's another thing to consider. A lot of times when golfers walk into a retail store, still to this day, no matter how much you know, we emphasize fittings and, and golf companies emphasize fitting, there's a lot of times where a consumer will walk into a retail store and he's simply just looking to justify what he's already decided on. So, you know, I, yeah. I want Club X. I'm going to take three swings. I like it. Good to go. And I think you're, you get that same type of phenomenon in the, in the direct-to-consumer space where you're like, yeah, you know what? I like I like the way this club looks. A lot of cases, the owners of the brand are accessible, right? So Jason Highland mentioned that his customers can pretty much call him at any time. Eric Birch from New Level, accessible. So you feel as a consumer that you have a direct line, not just to the company, but but even in some cases to the owner in a way that you don't have with a bigger golf company. So in that respect, you're, you're building a different type of relationship, yeah, getting a quality product. And, and you've got a guy, not not like a brand, but you have a guy who is going to stand behind this product, hopefully, right? How much of that is because direct-to-consumer to companies don't spend as much money on marketing. They use social media and personalities on the web that people get to know as part of their marketing strategy. In the article we wrote on Sub70, Jason mentioned that you know he could not do what he does without social media. And I'm sure, again, Eric Birch from New Level would say the same thing. Kind of the the outlier in that space with the brand who maybe hasn't been quite as 
I don't want to say effective, but has, has taken a different approach. Maybe Ben Hogan, which is now direct to consumer as well, but, but has a bigger presence, has a, has a brand name that carries a lot of weight. So they, they can take a little bit different approach, but for a smaller brand, having direct access to your consumers via, via social media is, I mean, that, that's what makes all of this possible, whether it's, whether it's a golf ball or a golf club. Well, and I think the other thing that makes it possible too is, you know, these guys that are doing it are, are smart. Like you said, they've been in the business for a while. They understand kind of some of the business realities. And they're seeing it too as a game of what's fixed and what's variable. And if I can change the price on something, that's a known quantity, right? If I can say, you know, these irons would be $1,200, $1,000, we're selling them for 600 The consumer knows exactly what that different, you know, difference is. What they don't know is Harry, like you were mentioning, the performance difference. So if there's a way for them to assure people that the performance is as good, if not better, or you know, on par with other big name brands, then they can basically take those two questions and answer them for them. And you know, frankly, that's where our testing comes into play a lot because it is, you know, if they can say, hey, we're in the middle of the pack of even in the middle of the pack, right, of these major brands, um, now I can answer question one, are we cheaper? Are we less expensive? Yep. Is the product good? Yep, it clearly is. Check, check. Buy now. There you go. Yeah, I mean, the, so my only question was, is following off that, it would be you have the the bigger OEMs, you know, the top three that can sell a product because their credibility is so high. They can sell it for like 1300 bucks or whatever it is. It's 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 up there. And then you got sub seventy who come in. A, a, an upgraded shaft is cut. You're topping out at five hundred bucks, and so it's it's more than half price in those big big brands. Now, is it because the bigger OEMs are using better materials, better tolerances, they can charge that much, or could they actually drop their price down to that five hundred bucks level and still make a profit, like the direct to consumer? Probably not. So the thing to keep in mind, right, you, you, you may or may not, I can't speak to anyone's specific tolerances, right? You may have a little bit more wiggle room with a direct-to-consumer product um, in some cases, but, and again, but take a new level, all of this stuff is being built to order and adjusted on the fly. So in those cases, well, maybe Eric doesn't have direct control of the head weights coming out of the factory and he's got to kind of elbow those guys to make sure everything is on spec. Um, ultimately, he has control over what comes out of the out of his doors in a way that that maybe a Callaway or a, a TaylorMade doesn't. So in some cases, size can can be an advantage, but the but the thing yeah. to understand from a pricing perspective is a small direct to consumer brand doesn't have a huge machine that it has to power, right? It doesn't have, we, advertising is the one that what everybody likes to poke at, right? But it, it doesn't have a C-suite full of, you know, a dozen, a dozen people with, with huge salaries. It doesn't have a massive or sizable accounting department with, you know, several people working in accounts payable and accounts receivable. It doesn't have an HR department or a big HR department, right? Everything you kind of think of, of any company, what, what all the pieces look like, they don't have that infrastructure that, that you have to feed and maintain because they're so small. I mean, we're a good example, right? We don't, we don't have an HR department. We, we outsource Shoot, our accounting. I was going to make a complaint. I was yeah, going to no. say, I sent an email. I sent an email to our HR department. I haven't heard back yet. Oh, yeah, exactly. yeah, that's, so that's to me. You sent it to me and it didn't come back. Sorry. That's, so that's, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting analogy because that's kind of how these direct to consumer brands work. They're, they're small. They don't require a lot of infrastructure to operate. And while that kind of infrastructure allows you to grow and become this massive entity, it also requires a ton of money to support. So it, it's yeah. not just about eliminating marketing. It's, it's about eliminating everybody who isn't in a small conference room. Right. That's, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good point, Tony. I mean, I've 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 bought stuff online through these manufacturers and they're what they're the top big the big boys in the industry, and say I I got a wedge I think I did get a wedge and I wanted a fifty six and it came out in a fifty eight, because it seems like they're pushing so many products out a day they don't have chance to individually quantify and test every single limit and see if they're going out with the specs that you ordered, 
And I know that for a fact with one company. So you're saying there's no quality checks? Well, no, there is quality checks, but more can slip through the gap. When it comes to the the yeah. um, DTCs, every single club that comes out, because they don't get a huge order, say if you're only they're only getting maybe 10 sets a day, where these Callaways and Tylus and blah, 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 they're getting three, 400, maybe more a, a day. So they're not individually going out. And I've known this and I've had a friend who's sent who's sent a wedge back three or four times because he ordered a, a 58 and it came it came in at a 64 degree. And now they're going, now he's in, he's got so frustrated that that product's sent back four, four times. He's actually getting off the tour van where you know it's going to be checked by an individual person who who gets the tolerances correct every single time. And prices are funny. I mean, prices are just funny too because you have, you know, there's just some of the, you know, economics 101 kind of stuff that people do respond to higher and lower prices and and sometimes associate that with quality. And so, you know, in some level, say, why does a set of irons cost $1,300 or $1,400? It costs that much because, you know, people are willing to pay that much. You know, whether it covers, uh, you know, sufficient amount of overhead or not, obviously companies have built in their margins. But, you know, if I said, you know, right now, what what do you think the top of the market is for, you know, run of the mill OEM drivers at 550? Is it 600? Is it, you know, what are, what's people's appetite to, you know, to pay a certain amount? And you're going to see, you know, them explore different higher price points to, to see what that was. And, and actually some of that goes back, interestingly enough, to PXG, when we call it the PXG effect initially, we've really see that, you know, seen that play out that, all of a sudden, when somebody says, "Yeah, that set of irons is two thousand dollars, or eighteen hundred dollars, or twenty five hundred dollars," there's not the same amount of shock and awe that you know when PXG came out, and it was three times, you know, the going rate of a set of irons. Well, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, they they created a, the market that wasn't there. So well, when they, PXG they found it, I mean, yeah, it was well, there, just nobody believed it. It was there, but they, yeah, exactly, and. It's, it was already there in Japan. I mean, Japan, if it's not expensive, no one even looks at it, correct? So when it, these sub-70s, they're going to be like, I'm not even wasting my time and even clicking on that, when actually they could actually perform some of the clubs that are 4000 bucks for a set of irons. Well, that's that's one of the things we've we've talked about before is that it's, it's a really, really thin line between inexpensive and cheap yep. and, and how that is perceived, right? So, so somebody's going to, gonna look at a set of new level or sub 70 or ben hogan or pick your direct to consumer brand up against one of the one of the bigger guys and so you know this, this is a 600 iron and the comparable one in a in a major oem lineup is is 1200 so so it has to be garbage yeah and that's going to be the mindset where another guy is going to go oh my god this is half as much what a value yeah no i agree i mean the uh -huh. The sub seventies and the new levels that I've hit, and I I was very much tempted to play the the sub seventy six, is it six nine nine pro yeah. versions? Yeah, yep. those like that holly that hollow body. I was like blown away by how great they felt. The launch angles, the spin rates, they just didn't quite come to the my gamers right now, which are the Strixons. But I was that way inclined, like. Do I, if I was looking for a new set of clubs and it was about time to actually get them, hell, let's save, let's save 700 bucks or whatever it is. And I will just, I'll be okay with losing a yard or a, a two yards in dispersion. Like I would be fine with that. It all depends on what the consumer is and where they are when it comes to money and what they actually want out of a product. Well, and I think Tony hit on a really important point before with regarding px she's saying you know it wasn't that the market wasn't there the market was there they just found it and i wonder if you know that's part of what i'm so interested in in this year we've talked about the opportunity gap you know basically meaning there's you know roughly 24 million golfers major oems cater to about 25 you know 25 percent of that so call it 17 18 million golfers that are maybe more inclined to buy golf clubs the way that you know Miranda buys pillow shams or the way that maybe we buy you know a pair of jeans or something. Um, if they discover that piece is there, the, you know these people that 
aren't necessarily brand washed to the same degree and aren't sitting there going, you know, I need that major label OEM. Maybe that market is there. The people are certainly there. And it's matching up this idea of how, you know, how do you get those pieces across to in these smaller companies, you know, let's say obviously their number one challenge is exposure. They're not going to spend the tons of dollars on R&D and marketing and advertising because then that drives up the cost and defeats the purpose and what they're doing in the DTC model anyway. So how do you bridge that gap between, yeah, we're going to keep our prices where they are. We want everybody to know about us. We don't want to raise our prices, but how do we get everybody to know about us? That's part of the shift we're seeing is is the idea of that or the reality I should say that that these direct to consumer brands in a lot of cases aren't staying direct to consumer or uh, never were direct to consumer by the strict <laughs> definition. So if you look at Ben Hogan, for example, they they transitioned from from nothing, right? They Ben Hogan came back and right. then they almost went out of business entirely and then they reemerged as a direct to consumer brand. And now what we're seeing is a push to get into club fitting locations. So they, they sign an agreement with Club Champion, for example. And that's the kind of thing now where you have an opportunity to, to put an, a, an inexpensive product into somebody's hands and still get the premium fitting experience and the proper fit, fitting experience that every golfer should go through. Similarly with, with New Level... They, again, Eric Birch has, has been in the industry through Club Connects, already had those f- connections at fitting places. So he's, he's been able to get into the, to the cool clubs and the club champions and the, and the true specs and places like that and have his product sit alongside other big OEM products in a premium fitting environment, which is, which is an incredible opportunity. And so, you know, Sub 70, I don't know what the future holds and what route Jason is going to go, but I think for any small brand, if they can get in to a fitting location, not necessarily a Dick's or a Superstore or someplace like that, but if you can get into a facility that is brand agnostic and be given the opportunity to compete against a big brand, right? all the big brands, and what, what is essentially a controlled environment, right, where the fitter is... is ideally giving everything an equal opportunity to perform well for you that is the best case scenario so i think think in terms of direct to consumer brands being strictly direct to consumer i don't think that's the future i think you're going to see overlap just as we've seen to degree in the ball space where yes snell is a direct to consumer brand and vice is a direct to consumer brand but you can buy vice on amazon and snell through golfballs.com and you know things like that where there's there's overlap between sort of this modern, I can get this directly from the guy who made it because I think that's cool, but I can also go get it where I would buy the rest of my golf equipment. So it's it's trying to find the right balance there and give golfers the opportunity to try your product in a competitive environment like that. That's that's probably what, where the future is for this stuff. So you don't think that there's long-term viability in it continuing to be explicitly direct to consumer you think I, there's got to be some sort of arena where people I can agree. get their hands on i think things. i think i think there is like i i think tony is correct in a way that i think dtc will merge a little bit into the the bigger ones where you can you can test the product that kind of stuff but i i see the dtc actually if you think of train track just running parallel to the the oems where you have all the big major oems say like eight or ten of them and then you have eight to ten D like direct to the consumers, and they run parallel, and they're offering two different prices, with the performances in the middle, and that's that's where the consumer is in limbo mode, where I could go either way depending on what my preference is. Now I could see the DTC actually helping grow the game in a way because if you're looking at if you want a brand new set of clubs and you don't want to spend thirteen hundred bucks, and you're willing to take a chance on five hundred or 450 not even having upgrades i think there is a huge opportunity for that well it is it is interesting though because you know we obviously are pretty entrenched in in this industry and and watch the trends follow them closely and certainly every year fitting is becoming a larger part of the conversation and and i think what you're seeing is that it kind of reaches you know once it was for that that core group of golfers right and that that fitting circles slowly expanding into kind of the 
the classification, if you will, golfer, how serious the guy is. It's it's getting to be a more casual golfer, not necessarily the most casual golfer, but a more casual golfer getting fit than you would see in the past. And so as as fitting continues to grow as part of the the buying equation, I think it, it will become a necessity for what we now call direct-to-consumer brands yeah. to be part of that equation in a legitimate way that extends far beyond just, yeah, you know what? Yeah, you want to try it? I'll send you a, a seven iron or two to try. Like really kind of the, a true fitting process is everybody needs to offer that. We are seeing a trend too that um, more people are getting fit, but it's still like a low proportion of the golfing industry when you when you look at it as a whole um and it's such an important part of your game and i mean we we put a stat up there the other day like 85 percent of pga pros obviously granted it was 2015 when the article came out mm -hmm. but 85 percent of pga pros have not been fit for a putter now the other 15 percent have and then they order their specs again and again and again over 10 years but here's the thing your eyes change Every every week, every year, whatever it is, you start becoming different. Your stroke changes over time. You need to be fit more often than not, and it needs to be one to two years, and it doesn't matter what club it is in your bag. So you're saying get fit and then buy your club online if you want to. Tony, you're saying you should be fit more regularly than you think you should. I would, yeah. I mean, I would I would never buy it. I, I don't say, you know, my, obviously our world is a little bit different. And when we get into peak season, very often we're, we're moving from OEM to OEM to OEM, getting fit for equipment every step of the way. But looking at it from kind of the the inside out and making a recommendation i would i would never recommend buying a piece of equipment without getting fit because again harry harry's right your swing changes but your swing also reacts to the equipment that's in your hands so yeah that, correct the weighting of that equipment how it's weighted the where the shaft bends whatever any number of variables alter the way that club is delivered so i think yeah it's important to get fit for every piece of equipment in your bag every time you put that piece in now yes i would i would much rather take my chances with knowing my specs from a previous build and going off that than just going in blind and, and buying stock or, or whatever happens to be there but yeah that's 90 percent of the golfing world right there 90 it is it is and so you know I, i'd still say get fit for everything and to, to wrap it up just say that is that is the biggest challenge i see for direct-to-consumer brands is that many of them don't have the capabilities to fit every golfer who might be interested in their product. So it's like a good pair of jeans, right, Chris? You got to go try oh. it on and then move around a little. I, you know, I would hope so. Um, it yeah. depends. I'm not, What's I'm not Spongebob much. What's a SpongeBob bring it around town? Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not <laughs> much of a straight leg jeans guy, but I think the You're two things. You're not even things... wearing pants right now, are you? <laughs> I bet he's wearing like shorts or boxes or something. I'm absolutely wearing shorts. With, with his beef in the side. Mostly. Nice hashtag America right there. <laughs> Shorts and a pocket of roast beef. <laughs> yeah. It's my, ver my version of heaven right there. Um, but I think two of the things that very well may happen, or at least bridges to that they're going to have to try to gap, is changing this nature. What do we even constitute fitting to mean? And so, oh. you know, like a uh, great example, Tour Edge. They have a, a, a guaranteed 48-hour turnaround on their products because they're custom fit. And is that fitting process going to be like going to a club champion? No, absolutely not. Um, another good example is uh, Mizuno has their DNA swing analyzer. So in three swings, this you know a, a commercial-grade gyroscope functioning item can basically eliminate 98, 99% of the shafts out there for you. It can give you your dynamic lie angle. It can produce a lot of data for you relatively quickly in three swings. Um, and get you really close. Ugh. It gives you a really good starting point for sure, which is... In a minute. Said, you know, 90 seconds, and then you have something like True Golf Fit where we've basically taken big data and helped golfers eliminate, again, a lot of the noise on the outside. So I wonder about things like, you know, with Ping, working with Arcos and Cobra, etc. As we get more and more data, are there going to be more centralized places that people could go to do different levels of fitting? So if I wanted, let's say, new level of golf, and I said, hey, I'm not quite sure, but I could go through some type of centralized fitting process to know I should probably be this lie angle, this is a good shaft for me, etc. I can pay $9.99, $14.99, whatever, do it online. 
is that something that would help those guys bridge the gap? Because, yeah, they're not going to be sending out demo sets or short of being able to get into some of the outlets and different fitters where they are on a, in a brand agnostic place, which is going to be more challenging than not for some of these smaller brands. Are there other things like that that can be adapted in the fitting space uh, to help them accomplish that? I think that's going to be something to watch. It, it Ultimately, it has to be, right? You have to, if you want to grow in a, in an environment where fitting is growing, you have to be able to compete somehow, at least if your goal is to attract serious golfers. And that's the thing. That's the challenge here, right? Because the the type of golfers who are learning about new level and sub-70 and the new Ben Hogan and these emerging direct-to-consumer golf brands are ultimately, I would expect, and I don't know this to be an absolute fact, but I would expect them to be core golfers invested in learning about these products. So you have a little bit of an inherent conflict there where mm-hmm. it's your your customer is more likely to be a guy who understands exactly how important fitting is and you maybe don't have the best options for him. So that's it's a well, difficult mm-hmm. balance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I think to sum it up, what I'm hearing is in terms of helping consumers navigate the direct-to-consumer market, get fit. We're always advocating getting fit, but don't be afraid to try some of these brands that are direct-to-consumer might not have the bigger names. Yeah, I mean, my my, my sum up is you see, you've seen it happen in golf balls where there's a lot of DTCs, brands that you have your core OAMs that you can try these balls out, but a lot of people are trusting that the DTC brands out there like the Snells and the Vices are, are a good ball. I, I see that now translating into golf equipment. I mean, Titleist um, has now done a DTC with with Not the... Not Titleist, Akushnet. Akushnet. That's now a, a DTC ball. Mm-hmm. So they've seen that and, and Titleist are a smart... They're a smart company. So Akushnet, sorry. Uh, so I've seen, I've, I can see it happening with the golf equipment too. I can see these bigger manufacturers saying, Hey, you know what? We are leaving a bit of a piece of the pie. Let's create another side of the company and go to the DTC so we can get both pieces of the pie. Um, and I'm going to, I guarantee we're going to see more companies like the sub seventies and the new levels that come that rise up and then go chorus, uh, go parallel with these bigger OEMs. It's interesting you mentioned the golf ball because, I mean, it, it should go without saying that the the barrier to entry there is a lot lot lower. There's a lot Correct. less yep. risk. You know, spending thirty dollars on a dozen golf balls is is nothing for a lot of golfers. Whereas spending even five hundred dollars rolling the dice on a five hundred dollars set of irons is comes with risk. Same with a driver. But if you're a guy who's who has been open to direct-to-consumer ball brands and, and you've bought Snell, Vice, whatever, p- pick one of them, right? And you've yeah. had a good experience with that. And you say, hey, I, I bought this ball. I saved a lot of money. A Kirkland even. I, yeah. I bought this ball. I saved a lot of money and it performed really well for me or ultimately I'm really happy. I'm satisfied with my purchase. That becomes a gateway to saying, hey, you know, direct-to-consumer worked for me last time around. I'm going to give it a go on the club side too because in some cases I'm saving three times as much money if you look at 500 versus 1500 in in some of these kind of premium Ford spaces. So there's a collaboration. That's a collab idea right there. See, get a DTC ball company with a club company and and leverage that. If uh, do you know any good German engineered uh, DTC equipment companies, (laughs) Tony? I do not. I do not. Okay, keep me posted. This might be a very simple question, but to what extent are there trial periods if you buy direct to consumer? Can you hit it a couple of times and say, "I hate this" and send it back? Well, yeah. Okay. Well, well, not not in general. Well, look at Snell. Snell, you can buy like three balls for five bucks or whatever it is. So they you're send, buying smaller trial packages. Yeah, you, okay. it's like five bucks, and what's five bucks? You know, right. you you get like you get the timeout. On the club side, it's as far as I know. I don't. I don't know to be honest with you. I okay. think. I think you have again. We mentioned owners that are very close to the point of sale, mm-hmm. and and they want customers to be happy. So I think certainly they a lot of them are going to be willing to work with you. But ideally, that that's why they have these demo club programs, right? Where they'll send you a club, you you spend some time with it in your hitting bay, uh, maybe with your coach. On, take it, you to take it on the golf course, right? Exactly. Take it out, wine it, dine it, 
treat it right and see how it <laughs> plays out, right? So um, I think that's really kind of the ideal trial model. Whether or not they offer money back guarantees, I consult the website. It's nothing I'd yeah. like that. But I just looked up sub-70. They have, you know, it's a, clearly a common question because second line on their website says, you know, and 60-day money back guarantee. Okay. Um, I would assume, you know, obviously they're a very uh, customer-centric um you know, a, a company, there are companies that use that as kind of a bait and switch thing, like the Chinese finger trap, where once you buy it, you have to go through this entire rigmarole to get your money back. And then the card gets declined and this and that. And there have been, you know, kind of scam things like that. I think that's why it's important to have those companies vetted. But, you know, certainly companies like Sub70, New Level, that are, you know, uh, customer centric companies are going to take care of that. It's become kind of like that, uh, the direct-to-consumer mattress space, right? Bring it yeah. home. <laughs> you, you read the reviews. You read right. a bunch of reviews. Bring it home. Take it out of the box. Sleep on it for up to 100 nights. And if you don't like it, send it back. That's that- that's ultimately the way it should be. Well, it's tough. You can't really you can't really shove a mattress through your letterbox. So that's kind of a tough one. That's more of a harder <laughs> process. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chris, I feel like there's a story there. Um, all right, guys. Well, some good information today. I think we can wrap it up there. Uh, anything else anybody wants to add before we head out? I mean, it's snowing. It is snowing I outside. Will. Well, it sucks to be you guys. I don't have snow this week. I. It is not confirmed yet. I, I won't know for certain until I think later tonight. You leaving the company? No, no. I will. <laughs> oh, shit. I, I, I just tease. I will just tease that it's it's possible that that next week we'll have a a special guest. Oh on yeah. Ooh. Oh, I don't even Ooh. know about this. This will be a surprise for me. No, you know it. I do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Next week so. I will have a different uh, type of meat with me on the show. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> oh, what kind? Please tell. I, yep, I'm gonna hold you in suspense. I'm not gonna tell you. Uh, How far is your nearest Jersey Mike's, man? That's the question. Ooh, fair yeah. question. I like that. Yeah. Have you seen Have you seen Tony's demeanor is actually lifted when uh-huh. he talks about sandwiches? Oh, oh I love this. I love a good sandwich. You guys have no idea. How happy he is. Well, that's episode 32 of No Putts Given. What an ending. <laughs> Bye. Right. Thanks, guys. We, we out. out.